All right, inappropriate Earl, back in the house. We've had some good episodes lately. We've had some rock and rollers. We've had some comics, male and female. Uh, today we have a cool guest because she's not a roast battler. She's not a comic. She's not an 80s metal icon. Thank you, Stephen Piercy, for making the trip down Laurel Canyon to my home. Still the coolest interview I've done. And I've done a lot of good ones. But today's cool because we don't have a performer. We have someone who writes about performers. Uh, I first met her when she did a fantastic article on Roast Battle when we were all just little baby pugs roaming around the belly room in search of fame. And she did a full page, uh, multiple page uh, article in the LA Weekly that really helped get the show noticed to a, a mainstream audience. Uh, she writes on comedy shows, uh, stand-up shows. Uh, she's no blogger. Thank you very much. Give it up, guys, for Julie Seabaugh, like Limbaugh. <laughs> Thanks, Earl. Thank you for having me. I, I, I sound kind of uh, lackluster compared to the 80s metal rockers, but maybe I can be like an 80s metal journalist, comedy journalist, rocking, tongue out, devil horns. Is that working at all for me? No, because no. it's not in your nature. Uh, but you would be great to write an article on the 80s metal scene because it's such a fascinating scene, to me anyway. I did have a soft spot for Aerosmith. They were my first favorite band. But they weren't really 80s metal. They were like 70s classic rock. And then they got into drugs and, and disappeared. And then the great Desmond Child, thank you, Desmond <laughs> Child, just wrote their comeback album, took 80% of the publishing, and they still have no money. But Don't forget about that uh, Diane Warren. Uh, was it Diane Warren? Don't want to miss a thing. Yes. Armageddon and, soundtrack. And Kiss being such copycats hired Diane Warren to write a song for their album that is such a ripoff of I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. It was called uh, Nothing wanna, Can Keep Me From You. Don't Want to Miss Nothing. Yeah, don't want to miss something other than our album sales that are dropping like a stone. But that, this isn't about Kiss. This is not about Desmond Child, Diane Warren, Holly Knight, uh, all the great songwriters of this generation. Uh, you, you know, I often say this about someone, like you're someone I consider a very good friend, Aww. but I don't know you. Ha! few do so maybe we won't be good friends after this podcast when we break down uh you know who uh, we both uh, slept with and intermingled with uh, it's welcome to the comedy store julie <laughs> thank you i mean for the record i've oh gosh am i gonna i, I oh, i'm not we don't need that. names <laughs> i mean my uh sexual uh history is uh of the uh, well known uh, on this podcast, so we don't. We can just skip right to yours. No, I'm just kidding. We all have our tangled backstories of. Uh, I, you know, there there maybe have been a uh, one or two instances of like, why did I do that? But I'm from. I'm pretty good for the most part. I'm from Missouri. You know, we don't. We're raised right. We were very ultra Christian, Jesus fearing, conservative folks. Um, did I mention I'm related to Rush Limbaugh? You said Limbaugh earlier. Yes, we, Julie is. Yeah. Uh, how, how are you related to the godfather of right-wing radio? Uh, his niece is my mother's cousin. Listen, I, uh, I don't vote in full disclosure, 
Uh, I don't like either side, but I love listening to him because he can spin anything to uh, make it seem like Trump or whatever Republican is in the news is like the greatest person on earth. And then you go to Rachel Maddow for the opposite view and you look at whatever's in the middle and that's probably, you know, where the truth is. Yeah, something lies somewhere within the... uh... Uh, bounds of uh, the ultra Jesuses and the uh, ultra Satanists. And uh, yeah, but that's kind of what I was raised in on a farm about two hours south of St. Louis. Had corn and soybeans and there were a couple cows when I was a baby. Fishing ponds and uh, four channels. Didn't have much in the way of entertainment. What was the fourth channel? We had uh, NBC, ABC, CBS, Fox. Well, you know, good old Rupert Murdoch, he really changed the game. Because Fox was like, they had the the first, I think, wackier shows, like Married with Children. Oh, yes. That kind of changed how uh, network TV and really spawned shows like FX, or not shows, but the networks and uh, Adult Swim, like certainly as <laughs> wacky content that, you know, the big three networks wouldn't dream of having. But now they all have them. I was not allowed to watch The Simpsons growing up. Or uh, Beverly Hills 90210, the first one. Well, it's a good thing uh, The Jellies came out in 2017. If you weren't allowed to watch The Simpsons. It was, you know, kids talking back to their parents and saying, don't have a cow, man. And that was very deeply disrespectful. But nowadays... (laughs) You have shows. Julie's having a uh, coughing attack. We also, before we move on, uh, Petey, the Wonder Dog, is here. Uh, Petey and Lois are, uh, you know, I, I'd say they're getting along better than uh, normal uh, between two dogs who are strangers. They're kind of like my parents. Petey's on the couch. Lois is on the opposite end of the room. I don't even see her anywhere. Lois is like my mom. She's a chameleon. She comes out uh, when she needs to. But uh, what got you into writing? I'm assuming like around high school, maybe the newspaper. Yeah, I was always reading as a kid. If you remember the book it programs they did in schools. I mean, I. At all. You could uh, read a lot and then you get a free personal size Pizza Hut pizza. I remember reading this fundamental program, but that's I'm a little older than you. We had uh, another one where. Uh, you, you get points for doing something, and I was always leading the class in points, and you know, just trying to figure out what was actually going on in the world out there beyond the cornfields. Liked movies. Uh, I liked the idea of creating stuff that kind of uh, inspired people to live bigger lives. I was always obsessed with New York and obsessed with LA, and I was subscribing to Entertainment Weekly from very, very young. Oh wow. And yeah, I remember kind of deciding around sixth grade, there was a, uh, a teacher, sixth grade Miss Martin's shout out, who was like, you're very good at writing. And I was like, I, I think I am. Well, I'm going to write. So yeah, that continued all through high school. I was doing all the honors English programs and stuff. Uh, my first published piece was an Elton John review for the high school newspaper. Did he play St. Louis? Uh... Yes. He was at the uh, then named the Keel Center. Home of the St. Louis Blues. 
That's uh, hockey, I believe, if I'm correct. Uh, Brett Hall, Doug Gilmore, uh, Mike Liut. But this isn't a hockey podcast. <laughs> I would not be. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be done very shortly. But that's where the big bands play. That's where, like, say, Kiss would go if they played St. Louis. Yeah, it was the local arena for everyone within a four-hour driving distance. (laughs) So that was the first I had published. And then in college, I went to University of Missouri, Columbia, Missouri, and did their journalism program. And was writing about film and music for the local Alt Weekly. And I was editing the film department there. And then my senior year, my extra semester of senior year, because I took a little while partying, uh, Dave Attell came a couple months before I graduated and did a show. And I realized, oh, this comedy thing that I never actually knew about, being sheltered as I have been in Missouri for these 22-some years, this is actually far more fascinating than music and film, and no one is writing about it in a intelligent critical way as a great art form i think this is it was always lumped in with calendar listings and music coverage and it didn't have its own real beat and being young and naive and uh wanting to get the heck out of missouri i moved to new york city a week after i graduated in december so i was driving through Pennsylvania in a snowstorm with a U-Haul, taking it right through Times Square when I landed in New York, setting up shop as a journalist, and I've been broke ever since. Yeah, I mean, uh, I would say writing about comedy is about as financially rewarding as doing comedy. (laughs) It's not a lot of money when you're, uh, you know... uh, finding your way about the uh, hierarchy of... uh, Because I think of magazines or... I guess it's all online now that, that cover comedy. There's not really a lot of stand-up heavy, uh, uh, I don't know, magazines or even websites. Right. And I, when I started, and uh, I mean, this is my 15th anniversary of covering comedy this month. So you've anyway. seen a lot of changes. Oh, for sure. For sure. And there was, uh, the Laugh Factory had a comedy magazine. Laugh Factory magazine, uh, I don't know my actual facts about it, but I'm gonna guess it was sometime in the 80s. Buddy, buddy. And <laughs> shout out to Jamie Masada, the owner of the Laugh Factory, who has never booked me. He's a person. Failed, <laughs> failed comic. Anyway. Uh, and I had actually started a comedy magazine when I was in New York. It lasted about two years. It's called Two Drink Minimum. Minimum. Mm. Minimum. Uh, and. Then I, uh, yeah, hit, hit some more of the financial difficulties and I'd been freelancing all that time and was finally picked up by the New Times media chain, uh, which then became the Village Voice chain, which I have no idea what chain it is now at this point because it's changed hands a couple times and was brought on board to be an editorial fellow for six months back in St. Louis. And from there I went... To Las Vegas, and I was working for Las Vegas Weekly. And that's a very, I don't think people realize Vegas is a good comedy town. Yeah. If you're a comic. Definitely a local scene there, for sure. It's hard to grow and evolve and become a headliner in Las Vegas. You kind of have to leave and go somewhere like LA or New York and then come back again, get booked once you're out of town to play on the Vegas Strip. 
I know you you that's crazy that if you're from Vegas and it's a lot like LA I would say I mean I started in LA which is probably the worst place to start because you're you're in the place where everyone's coming who's already famous or they've honed their craft and no offense to St. Louis but like Winnipeg and then when they're ready they come to LA so it, it's LA's the I love LA. Thank you, Randy Newman. But uh, it's probably not the best place to start. I mean, you can definitely grow to be a very solid feature in Vegas, but it's a when you get down to it, actually, a really small town, and there is a lot of film and music and local art there. And you know, it's all like I said, very small, very independent. But when you have the powers that be there, the bookers, the producers who only know you as you know, hey, uh, a, a B-level sort of person, they're not going to go ahead and give you the headliner money until you go out and prove that they should give it to you. And I think that's the way it should be. But, you know, you see some of the people that headline. It's like, you guys couldn't headline the head of a line, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, but, you know, it's the business. It's also a very different comedy crowd that you're playing to because it's all tourists who are looking for something crazy fun to do between drinks and gambling and they're not comedy connoisseurs per se no they like like larry the cable guy like you know they like it simple that's my dad's favorite comedian it's all good listen i i don't hate on the guy uh it's not my shtick but uh he's a millionaire and i'm hoping to get a thousand listens on my podcast on soundcloud so i think uh he wins we do it for the love I do this podcast for the love. I up until recently did stand up for the love. Uh, but uh, thanks to uh, Roast Battle, the show gives, keeps on giving to Earl. Uh, you know, it's been a good year. But uh, I think if you do it for the love, you will make money. It's like you do writing for the love. Yes. And I mean, 15 years in, and you kind of mentioned this earlier, definitely things have changed a lot. There were about. The first five years were more traditional journalism and people paid the rates they were supposed to and you could kind of make a living. And then the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008 came. And in the years after that, you know, traditional journalism did get wiped out. A lot of print media. We've still seen it continually de-evolving uh, as ad rates plummeted, a lot of stuff goes to the web. And freelance rates have gotten worse and worse. And you will see blogs getting new writers contributing in exchange for exposure. And you will see a lot of content created based on clickability value, lists, uh, think pieces, inflammatory reactions. And I definitely try to stay away from all that at this point. I like to look for the things that no one else is doing in certain ways. Um, I very rarely try to respond to press releases or specific invites to cover, hey, this new TV series is debuting. Well, there's plenty of people writing about TV just like music and film, but there's really only a handful of people writing about comedy well in any capacity. And I'm certainly the only one doing it full time as a freelancer. And 
I don't recommend the uh, idea of doing it for anything but the love of it, of, of telling the stories behind the comedians. Because um, you're a fan. Like, oh, for sure. And that comes across in your writing. Like, it's not just, okay, let's do an article on this comic or that David Tell or, you know, uh, Chris D'Elia or wh- whoever, Maria Bamford, Roast Battle. You like, like that Roast Battle article was my first exposure to your writing. And it was like four pages. Like, like <laughs> most people would have given it one page. It's two comics shitting on each other. It's wacky. <laughs> you know, you went into the show's origins, uh, you even interviewed Kenny Lyon, for, for God's sakes, <laughs> who uh, is a L.A. icon and the a certain uh, comedy uh, open mic uh, legend, I might say. No one would interview him. Like, that's how deep your research goes, and that's how much you care. It's like, I'm going to interview everyone involved on this show, and, and it's not just a, a surface, like, who are your influences? You know, you really delve. Where do you come up with your material? Right. Uh, Roast Battle, from the second I saw it, I absolutely was blown away. I knew it was something very special. I'd been hearing about it from a couple comics. I remember Ari Shafir was one. Uh, and I saw him after a show, and he's like, oh, yeah, you got to absolutely see what's happening up there. And I, yeah, went up in the belly room, and it's standing room only and sweaty, and people are screaming, and... Once I started realizing that it's not just, it's not about insults. It's. Back then it wasn't. Well, it's very, it's about joke writing. Again, it is an art form, writing the best jokes possible. And there are so many other layers happening at the same time about, you know, we're, if we can all laugh at our differences and shortcomings and things we don't like about ourselves, it's unites us in certain ways and it's also a show that is insanely diverse uh in terms of race and gender and religion and sexuality and abilities and you also have the fact that there's a lot of freedom of speech discussion happening in comedy and the world at large right now and all of these things are coming together to create something that is no holds barred there are zero restrictions, and it's kind of beyond laughter in a lot of ways. It's more of a, oh, this sounds so lofty and ridiculous, but a social movement. I No, I always thought of the show like All in the Family was for uh, television. Like, you know, just came in and said some, especially All in the Family was on CBS. I think people forget. Like, they would say the N-word on CBS in the 70s, and it wasn't just for saying the word it was like had a meaning behind it of this is how stupid people are when they say that word you know and archie bunker was like this lovable uh racist buffoon um which is what i modeled my small part of the show after so you owe uh you owe norman lear a bit of a kickback oh my god norman lear provided norman lear should probably get some roast battle uh money uh and believe me if he hears this he'll look into it like (laughs) Because even the Jeffersons was uh, like a black all in the family, especially early on, uh, you know, and that's to me uh, what attracted me to Ross Battle and, and like other like certain comics. Like I love David Tell just because he keeps it real. Like Absolutely. there's no bullshit. He's not trying to get on. So that that's Lois just chilling. We have Lois and Petey. Some, some actions happening. What's wrong? 
So uh, sorry about that. You know, this podcast is a one-man operation. From time to time, you will hear my iPhone go off because I haven't figured how to turn it off because it's linked into the iPad and this. And, and so it's a, this is not Mark Mariner Rogan's podcast. Keeping it real here in WeHo. You know, I don't have a uh, I don't have a red band. There you go. We have a, a buzz on cue that happened. So, uh, but like when you uh, switching gears from roast battle, do you like to write about comics who are kind of like a tell like, or will you write about any comics? Like, do you have a preferred style of comedy that you like covering? Ooh, that's good. Uh, a tell is still my number one guy for sure. He. You know, like I said, got me into comedy in the first place. I didn't even finish telling the whole story of that, which was I this was when Insomniac was at its height on Comedy Central when I was at the end of college. And when he came, I got to interview him over the phone beforehand for the local Vox magazine Alt Weekly and then went to the show. And then after the show, some of the student journalists got to go backstage and talk to him a little bit more. And then myself and a couple of friends took him across the street to the local journalism school bar, the Heidelberg. And again, this being the height of insomniac, he was sent Jägermeister shots from all over the bar, could not possibly drink them all, shared them with us. And I woke up on my friend Dan's couch, very, very sick, crawling to the toilet. As I'm vomiting, I'm thinking, I like this comedy thing. And after I moved to New York, he was very incredibly nice to me. And every time I try to tell him, thanks again for <laughs> giving me that start, he's like, ah, blah, ugh. And being a tell, he doesn't want to hear it. But yeah, he's the best. He's very much about the craft and not about the surrounding bullshit and the celebrity. And, you know, I mean, he quit doing Insomniac because it was making him too famous. <laughs> That's why I love him. And I love any of that comedy in that vein. You know, Stan Hope is a big one for me. Uh, I did like Louis C.K. I got. I, I'm not sure we want to dive into all that. Oh, that's. I mean, I have uh, great comic. But <laughs> does no it, uh, it just? You know, as you uh, can tell, I plan no questions. But since we mentioned that, like, um, I'm a big '80s metal guy. I love the Michael Jackson song, Beat It, because Eddie Van Halen did the guitar solo. I can't listen to the song. Knowing, well, I don't know, but I suspect Michael Jackson had proclivities that uh, might have been illegal. Uh, yes, he can moonwalk, I understand, and sing in key, but uh, I believe he um, might have uh, had some interactions with children that might not be legal. I don't know if he did or didn't. Gasp. But with Louis C.K., great comic. Uh, and I'm not at, you know, I don't want to get you in trouble. Like, I just, it's hard for me to see clips of him now because it's like of that uh, alleged creepy predatory behavior. And I will, you know, be honest and say I did know about it. And like everyone else's reason for not coming forward, yeah, I'm, there's no way I could write about it. It's just not feasible without getting drummed out of the business. Um, you mean write about it before? Yes, before uh, it came the, out. The in me the, too. Yes, yes, that's correct. Because w would it be uh, like if you um, 
exposed is the wrong word, but uh, well, maybe it's the right word. Uh, you think it's just going up against someone who's, you know, he's obviously a huge comic, huge management publicist. I mean, he's got the best of everyone helping him. You would get blowback from them, possibly? Yeah, I could certainly get banned from the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival. I could certainly get banned from the Comedy Store. Well, I don't know about that. I <laughs> Store's very welcoming. Get, it's it's not outside the realm of possibility. Right. And either way, you don't, especially if you're a freelancer, you know, if you have the New York Times or LA Times working on these sorts of Me Too stories, you've got people behind you. But as a freelancer, it's like, hey, um, I'm going to ask you these questions for LA Weekly. It's not quite standing on the firmest ground. And the LA Weekly is a fantastic. Uh, if you're not uh, from LA, there's a weekly newspaper called the LA Weekly. They have great articles about you know stand-up uh police corruption they really cover everything uh, i also have massage parlor ads in the back but th that's to titillate your interest if you're into that kind of stuff i don't know if you're aware of uh over the past month or two they've had new owners of the massage board. parlors the uh la weekly got oh. bought out by apparently a conservative group oh. and they fired pretty much all the staff but one editor and there's been some blowback and some boycotting of ads. I haven't really written anything for them since just to see what's going to be coming out as the dust settles. Uh, there were some rumors that they weren't going to pay writers, uh, but I finally did hear back that they would. Doesn't mean I've pitched anything yet. Uh, we'll just have to see. But that's just a little aside. Doesn't really have to do with comedy coverage. But, but I mean, I, I don't uh, like I, I don't know if New York has an L.A. Weekly type of magazine or Village not magazine. Voice was always theirs. Uh, yeah. But I just find the L.A. Weekly uh, so fascinating because it seems like there's something for everyone there. If you're a music fan, there's music reviews and movie, you know, they do the movie reviews. And uh, I really like the police corruption, uh, which are, you know, you could probably have a magazine that just covered that. Uh, you know, they seem to uh, be, would it be fair to call it an alt, at least up until the recent ownership, uh, yes, an alt, alt newspaper? Yeah, alt weeklies, which used to rule the country. Uh, every city had one that was covering, like you said, the local arts and right, like uh, local government and local police sort of stuff in a way that the daily newspapers weren't. Uh, they've definitely been a victim of all the downsizing since the financial crisis 10 years ago. Uh, tons of them have closed all over the place. Boston, Seattle, Minneapolis. Well, even newspaper. Like, I, I mean, I, back in the 90s, used to love going to get the LA Times, the Herald Examiner, if uh, you LA locals. I mean, that was like... Like the, and there wasn't an alternative to the LA Times, but it was a mainly a little more mom and popish. Uh, and then you know the there was a sports, uh, the National. It was a weekly sports, uh, LA Weekly, but for for big sports, it, I mean they they've all gone down. I don't go on the the internet to read the LA Times. Yeah, but I guess people do. I love a newspaper. I mean, even three years ago when I did. Uh, like three and a half, I guess at this point when I did the roast battle cover, 
I was thrilled because, well, I mean, it was Rose Battle's first press. And then I also managed to make it the cover of LA Weekly as my first LA Weekly cover and still only LA Weekly cover. But it was a big deal because it really did represent something that how much this comedy show meant and was going to mean for the comedy industry as a whole. And I still believe it's going to have such a massive legacy. And that was actually the same week I had a Village Voice cover in New York of Bridget Everett. Bridget Everett's first magazine cover. That's a big week for me. But the point was uh, that, yeah, these things used to mean a lot more. The Village Voice is now only online since that date. Um, Well, not since, but in the interim. Uh, Went online only about a year ago. And they're kind of following the trends of all these blogs of you got to make it clickable or else... No one's going to be reading it at all. And then you just don't survive. I mean, I get the uh, idea, but I just think if you have an interesting story, that that will make it clickable. But that's a Pollyanna view of life. Uh, that's us doing the art for the love again. Yeah, I mean, I, I do stand-up because I love doing it. It's like, you know, I had a meeting the other day with a big manager. He's like, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, I just love doing stand-up, man. He's like, well, there's no money in that, bro. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Or or he might mean, or she might mean, uh, well, there's no money in it for them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was like, oh, what else? Do you have any shows you want to pitch me? I'm like, uh, can't you just hook me up with better stand-up gigs and you'll make money? He's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, nice knowing you, Earl. <laughs> to see on, uh, you know, season three of whatever. But, uh, but yeah, that's all sort of, and I think that was your original question before we digressed. Uh, into the journalism stuff but but, yeah I like the comedy that's real and has something to say and I like going about finding these stories in a way that is unique and not something that I'm being encouraged to do like everyone else is being encouraged to write about at the exact same time and kind of find out uh, it's less for me about here is a joke that a person said that was funny and people laughed and far more about figuring out the context in which it was created during that person's process, what was going on in their life, their life that led up into this point and what it means going out into the world. It's all about the context and comedy is a social force. And I try to always figure out ways to kind of express a deeper meaning Because if you take comedy on surface levels, which is another big trend happening these days, and only look at a word, uh, look at jokes based on their words and structures and sentences and put them in print and the like, yeah, you can be offended (laughs) and see a lot of political incorrectness, but you have to examine the context or else you're kind of veering into fake journalism at that point, I think. Fake news. Thank yeah. you, Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Well, I think as long as a joke is funny, it, it, it's survivable uh, under any criticism. I, I think uh, I know uh, T.J. Miller had that rape joke at the Laugh Factory a couple of years ago that had a lot of controversy behind it. And, uh, you know, he's great. But, like, I, I ultimately think the problem was the joke maybe wasn't the most hilarious. Right. Which I think if it was, he, he would have, you know, maybe gotten not a pass but wouldn't have gotten the grief he got uh, you know same thing with uh, other comics who've been called out on a joke you know I think ultimately the problem was it just wasn't that funny 
And that's another thing. If you have people sitting in the audience at the Laugh Factory, yes, this is L.A., the entertainment capital of the world, but a lot of times comics are still going to be working out stuff in these venues. Oh, my God. And shouldn't be taken as a final product like you're going to see on a finished special. Yeah, I mean, if someone had a camera going during some of my late night sets at the comedy store, I don't think I'd ever get booked again. Oh, for sure. Uh, but you can really go deep. Uh, you know, when you're, like you said, you're just, you know, I'm working on it, not to make this about me, but just to show you this, what you're talking about. Like, I'm working on a joke about the Vegas shooting. Like, how good was he as a shot? You know, you know. Now you think, how can you make fun of something that horrible? And it's a horrible, horrible uh, incident. But, you know, uh, I'm sure if someone saw some of those early incarnations of the joke I was doing, they'd be like, this guy's a maniac. Uh, I mean, even Michael Richards at the Laugh Factory, like, I think ultimately what killed him wasn't the use of the N-word or or the thing he said about hanging from a tree. It was like, this is not funny at all. Like, you I think he could have helped himself if what he was saying was a little funnier. Right. And I guess, you know, trying to figure out what was happening there was he was trying to make a point of what people could say in that scenario. He was kind of projecting something. It wasn't him talking as him, but that just goes to show that he wasn't doing it well. The well, joke I, was not working. Oh, yeah. The the N-word, you know, once or twice, I think he would have gotten a pass. Okay, maybe he was nervous. He just, it slipped. But Swan saying it like 30 times probably didn't get him a lot of uh, luxury in terms of, oh, he was just nervous. And then that the hanging from the tree line was like, okay, that came from the heart. Because like, <laughs> that's not something you would just say that rolls off your tongue. Like I've said some things that just came into my head pretty harmless but that like that was deep seated so uh but i still will maintain that uh if it was funny people would have been like hey that was funny yeah i certainly don't want to say that we're defending it whatever it was because we can't know his intent inside of his head but when you talk about something like that or the T.J. Miller thing or any of the political backlash happening, this is all just stuff that I don't really have as much interest in because there's just this onslaught of voices who are gabbing about it and why do I want to actually add something that is maybe a little more well-versed and educated right. <laughs> to the den that's just going to be lost. Why waste my time doing that when I could be writing about something a bit more unique and something that I care a bit more deeply about. It's a tough kind of line to, to follow between like, I'm, I'm terrible at self-promotion. I'm here because it's my 15th anniversary of writing about comedy and I'm proud of it. And I just don't, necessarily like to do stuff day to day that's just going to get attention that isn't really coming from my gut from loving comedy and trying to present it in a way that makes people really think about it in a way as an art that affects society as a whole well i think the problem is there's so much comedy out there it's hard to i'm sure it's even hard for a writer to go what do i write about like there's 
you know, there's uh, seven or eight late night talk shows that have stand up on it. There's, you know, Comedy Central and Netflix, you know, have round the clock stand up or stand up, you know, theme shows and you know then there's you know a million local la shows roast battle there's stand up on the spot there's you know uh so many it's like wow what do i thousands of shows yeah i mean literally there's the alt scene and like los Feliz and eagle rock and and then there's uh you know the more hollywoodish shows like you know jay davis type shows where no i mean like you know i i don't mean that as a shot at jay uh but you know he'll do his like kind of like corporate type you know uh, shows at the parlor on melrose which is you know you'll see like big name comics on and then uh you know the comedy store i think is a, I, what i love about the comedy store is it seems to bridge all worlds like you'll have all comics like jake weissman who's awesome you'll have the more popular tv comics who are all great uh you know someone like best stelling who just got passed She's awesome. So it's like a hybrid of everything. There's something for everyone up there. Yeah, there's certainly no reason for anyone to not find something to laugh at in the current comedy realm. There is so much happening. And it's kind of, I mean, it's definitely overwhelming as someone who tries to keep a finger on the pulse. I used to, when I very first started out in New York, know every special coming out and every album coming out ahead of time and pretty much who every professional comedian was. And now even the definition of comedian, my God, has changed drastically and all the independent albums that someone will record in, you know, even in their basement in front of friends or something and put out on iTunes. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's almost like podcasts. Like the great thing about podcasts is anyone can do it, but that's also the bad thing. <laughs> Anybody can do it. Yeah, and I don't really cover a lot of podcast stuff. I mean, I did a like Mark Marin story for GQ because yeah, if I'm going to get the chance to do a Mark Marin story for GQ, I'm going to do it. But it had far less to do with the podcast and about him and his life. And his mental process, which is endlessly fascinating. Oh, he's a mentor. As we all know. I mean, I read his book because I like, uh, I look up to him as a role model for older comics who, um, you know, are struggling. You know, he wasn't, uh, you know, the most uh, successful uh, guy up until later in his life. His first manager, I think, said, don't do the podcast. You won't make any money at it. It's like so he fought through roadblocks oh oh my god i'm getting older i'm in my 40s or late 30s i'm kind of like i'm known but i'm not known uh and so i I look up to him a lot uh and certainly a lot of that could have been self-sabotage oh absolutely to put it mildly but i mean you know he had his issues yeah Uh, it's a fact that he was kind of sort of at the end of the road he was thinking for his career and started doing it out of desperation. I know how he feels. <laughs> we all do. Oh, I really know how we he all, feels. Yeah, everyone in this room. Am I right, Petey? Well, I mean, uh, but he's like, should be the role model for uh, never give up, you know, if, oh, you, sure, if yeah. you believe in what you're doing. And, you know, he literally still does his podcast in his garage. 
He had the president of the United States in his garage. Uh, so I'd settle for, uh, I don't know, the bass player from Bon Jovi to come down, but, you know. Uh, and it's also one of those things of, yeah, he may have helped Spawn. He didn't start it by any means, but certainly helped move it along. Uh, this whole entire movement that people want to try and copycat, but you have to look at the overall moral of it, which is, Go with your gut and try something, even if it's super scary. You're going to have to throw yourself off that cliff yeah. if you really, really believe in it. So it's not about podcasting per se. It's about doing your thing and not giving up and not being afraid. Oh, I'm petrified every day uh, of stand-up, this podcast. Can I get a guest next week? Uh, will people listen to it? Uh, well, the sound cut out halfway through the podcast. That's why I'm always getting up, uh, you know, but. Uh, but that's healthy what's working the, anxiety. Yes. You're doing it. You're not huddled in a corner, not doing it and just freaking out about your life. And, you know. Wait till you leave. That's, the, you just describe what I'm going to be doing when you leave. Uh but, but no, I agree. I think if you uh, believe in yourself and like you believe in your writing, I believe in my comedy and this podcast. I mean, I don't make any money doing this podcast, but I, this is, I think, the 199th episode. I still love doing it. Uh, I think I've gotten a free pair of hockey gloves. Uh, <laughs> That's one more pair of free hockey gloves you would not have. But when I got it in the mail, I was like, wow, this is why I want to be famous. Not for the money, the women, or, or whatever, so I can get, like, a free pair of custom-made hockey gloves. Thank you, ProStockHockey.com. They're not an official sponsor, but I appreciate their, uh, you know, I only have one sponsor on this podcast. And as you might know, I'm holding a pair of Mike Knuckles that the singer of Rat, Stephen Piercy, said, I want to be the official microphone holder of inappropriate earl that's a real thing oh absolutely you know they're kind of cool you could uh hold the mic uh like so you could hold like you know is that considered a wet or what is the class of brass knuckle it's not like a weapon it's a brass but it's a, knuckle uh but they're microphone holder brass knuckles are designated as a illegal weapon I so believe. is that microphone holder illegal that could be the the angle I take on the podcast. But that's why I do comedy. It's just to get the singer from Rat to come to my home and give me a pair of Mike Knuckles. For those listening at home, they're pink. Pink with little diamonds on the top. I'll uh, tweet out a picture of them. Uh, but that's why, like, like why do ultimately, why do you do writing? Because there is nothing else in the world I can do to be to satisfy whatever this urge is in my stomach and head and heart and how ridiculous do I sound right now? But there's literally nothing else I can do. It's not even something. So there's no plan B for you. I mean, there are certainly other projects I would like to do within the comedy realm, but they all involve telling comedy stories and, you know, books, documentaries, all that sort of stuff. But I don't really want to produce. I don't 
You'd be good at that. Managing. I mean, there would be certainly scenarios I would entertain if the right opportunities came along, but I'm not going to do it just to do it. There are ways to, you know, compromising for the money versus maybe I'll take a chance on this and see where it leads. And the one thing I've learned after 15 years is, yeah, it's not about the money. It's about going with your gut and being able to say, yeah, I'm doing what I love to do in a way that makes me happy and no one else is doing it. And what do I have to complain about? I'm very, very, very lucky. Well, it's the best, uh, especially when you have a good circle of friends. Like, you know, I put you in the same uh, realm as like Troy Conrad. Oh, the best. Like that's what makes us, you know, going to the comedy store great because you you'll see you writing an article on whatever show you're there to see. Troy Conrad's taking pictures. Uh, Jeff Ross is there. You know, David Tell, and uh, you know, you've got just the, the such an amazing group of probably forty, fifty people who are all intertwined in some capacity through comedy. And uh, I don't know if there's another profession on earth that lets writers, comics, producers, agents, managers, directors all intermingle in one evening like comedy. Yeah, the vibe at the comedy store, and obviously we all know that it's changed for the better over recent years, but I just love it. Every time I go there, I get a boost. And there's something about being, it's not even just the comedy store strictly, but anytime I'm in a comedy show where... It's full and everyone's laughing and the comics are having a great time on stage and everyone is kind of forgetting about their problems and laughing in this same space in the same moment at the same time. It gives me a little spark of optimism for humanity and comedy. Yes. Helps us laugh in the face of tragedy and forget our problems and think about the world in new and different ways. But there's something about, that room that can't be duplicated online or in podcasts or in web series uh, that I think is very, very important. The live comedy aspect to me just surpasses anything. There's nothing I would rather be doing than sitting in the back row of a comedy show. Well, especially in the original room, the comedy store, uh, you know, where, you know, the lineups are so strong these days. When there's lineups that I'm on, I'm like, I don't even know if I should be on this lineup. Uh, <laughs> but you see so many different, like you'll see Joe Rogan, and you see Anthony Jaselnik, kind of opposite energies. And then <laughs> after Jaselnik, you'll see like Joey Diaz, <laughs> you know, just completely just <laughs> eviscerates any room he does. Like it's like a pro wrestler. And then uh, Bill Burr. And, then, and ladies too sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Beth Stelling, Sarah Tiana. Uh, Eleanor Kerrigan. Eleanor, uh, Natasha. Um, Annie Lederman. Oh, Annie, uh, she was the first... She's the person that brought me up for my first set at the comedy store. Like, oh, I didn't know that. When I, when I got passed, and uh, I'll never forget it. Like, she gave me like the best intro. I was like, "This guy's wearing leather pants and he has a fucking big dick." Uh, give it up for Earl. And it's like the crowd was <laughs> like, "What the fuck?" Uh, there's a lot of very funny women at the comedy store. Uh, Whitney Cummings, obviously, when you know she's around, and uh, 
think uh, you know amy schumer from time to time is up there not a lot but uh you know i think adam the uh talent coordinators and uh i think the previous talent coordinator was not exactly female friendly let's just say that uh so i think that the variety at the comedy store and improv as well uh i wouldn't know about the laugh factory because they don't let comics in but <clears throat> <laughs> you want to pay 20 hooves uh it's uh i think the gender variety like you were saying about roast battle that i think the uh, variety of comedy now has never been better like there's gay comics black latino asian you know there's uh, ali wong uh you know uh leslie jones i mean uh, punky for god's sake punky i mean punky's awesome if you're late night uh roaming the sunset strip to see punky johnson is like she'll kick you in the balls uh super funny uh, candace thompson uh tiffany haddish yeah, it tiffany. Was her year yeah i mean fantastic uh, yeah i mean it's there's a lot of very very funny female comics uh coming and uh, a lot of funny male comics and uh robin tran is one of my favorite comics to watch transgender comics so uh there's uh, something literally something for everyone i've uh, been following robin tran on facebook and she's been writing some really interesting stuff she's yeah, like you said, transgender comic and talks about, you know, dealing with some of that stuff. The mental issues has a history of depression, even still very frequently. She's kind of figuring out a lot of stuff in her life right now. And comedy's absolutely a lifeline. Fantastic roast battler who's only going to get better. And yeah, if I could have a recommendation, check out uh, Robin Tran on social media. Yeah, she keeps it real. Saying a lot of really interesting stuff that I think should be a part of any serious comedy fans. Well, not like a library, but if you really want to look inside a comic's head and why they love comedy and need comedy to stay alive. Oh, my <laughs> that's God. That's a good example. I mean, I owe uh, comedy everything. Like, my sanity. I, I, I wouldn't say I would kill myself if I didn't have comedy, but uh, I'd think about it a lot more if I, like, didn't have the outlet to go on stage and talk about a bad breakup or, you know, whoever it is I'm dating now or, uh, you know, the, you know, and Robin's the same way. Like it, comedy is like a, a light, like you said, a lifeline for a lot of us. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. I've had a history myself, um, you know, a couple points along the way thinking those same sort of, Negative thoughts, uh, you know, going the way of medication and contemplating different things if stuff doesn't work out. Uh, but yeah, about four years ago, started definitely turning it around. Um, haven't had those same depths. It's always there. Uh, you know, when you have mental chemistry that was given to you at birth there's not really anything you can do about it except try to understand it more and realize you know even if you feel different from a lot of people and you're doing creative things it's not necessarily a bad thing to feel that way it drives you forward it is an explanation for why you feel so different and can try to do these things that a lot of nine to five people maybe living back in Missouri, you know, my entire class is they're all working at fast food restaurants and in air conditioning repair shops. 
And on some days I might feel a lot more miserable than them, but on the opposite end of the spectrum, I'm doing something nothing none of them have done. But it's not easy to, I think, write about comedy or do comedy because uh, it's, uh, it's the toughest business in the world to me. Like, <laughs> it's, I mean, you get rejected for articles that you want. I get rejected on TV shows I want to get on, you know, uh, or festivals or whatever. So it's like a constant stream of, uh, you know, uh, dealing with stuff that's out of your control. It's certainly a lot more lonely than a lot of professions. Uh, you know, the writing process, whether it's journalism or comedy, is something you have to do alone inside your head and be very, very real about sometimes very uncomfortable things. And it's inevitable, I think, when you want to tell the truth and do the whole, like I was saying, uniting people in a room or when they're reading an article, not to say that I'm uniting people over my journalism. But you do, though, because <laughs> you give people an insight into the, the, the happiness, the light, and the darkness of what we do. Like, I don't think people really realize stand-up or sketch comedy, you know. I got kicked out of the Groundlings, so I'm not real familiar with that <laughs> world, thankfully. Thanks, Sean Hogan, for being a dick. Like, don't get mad at me. I didn't ruin your career it's, anyway it's a great improv i'll give him that <laughs> um but i don't think people realize that stand-up's not just all you know making millions and having specials and you know it's a lot of you, you know you can only hear no so many times before it doesn't affect you yeah that the whole uh definition that tragedy plus time equals comedy it sounds you know like a hack slogan but that's what it is. It's about figuring out ways to laugh at the bummers in life. Of which there are many. From very minor having a bad day stuff to, you know, 9-11, genocide. Which there is humor. There's, uh, there's some great humor. And that's why when you look at the history of comics who are considered the best in the business, your priors, your Carlins, up through your... Doug Stanhope's, they are talking about big bummers. And that's how you advance comedy. And that's how you advance society. And that's how we all start thinking in different ways and eventually just kind of, you know, persevere. Laughing gets us through the shit show side of life. Because we all experience the same situations in life Bre breakups deaths in the family uh, you know health crisis uh, so i think if you're good at communicating you'll make the crowd get behind you it's like yeah i, I knew someone who died of cancer or i i just had a bad breakup i get what why you're feeling it uh so tragedy is inevitable it really is yeah, like I you mean, can't you know, you can try to prepare for it, but it's going to happen. And it can either basically stop you in your tracks from that point on, or you can evolve and grow and move on and just find some of that solace in the fact that, yeah, this does happen to everyone. And that it's where comedy comes in. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, 9 11 is like the perfect example of like maybe the worst day in the history of this generation. Uh, you know, I don't, I mean, think too many things uh, parallel it, in our, in, at least in my lifetime. Uh, it's like our JFK assassination. I mean, everyone knows where they were in 9 11. Uh, but, you know, if you dig deep enough, there is it's not that there's something funny about it but like just the absurdity of you know some things that you could delve into you know like i literally went out and when i had heard the terrorists trained in part on the microsoft flight simulator game i went out and bought it i was like i'm gonna see how good i can be like i want to see if i could I couldn't even get, they start you off on like a small Cessna and you try and get it off the runway. <laughs> I couldn't even do that. So I'm like, wow, these guys are good. Like, so there's like, so I'm not be saying. a bad terrorist. Yeah, I would not, I would not have made the, the top 20 cut on 90. But, you know, something as stupid as that could be funny. You know, if, you know, someone else wrote the joke, I, I'd tell it. But, uh, you know, there's, you know, comedy and death, you know depending on how it happens uh you know breakups are tough an often uh talked about subject with comics because comics aren't the best social creatures i'm shocked that you know from david tell to me to stan hope to an open micer no one's ever heard of we've all had a breakup so i'm sure david tell would be a little better at crafting the joke than me i can't even picture david tell in a relationship can you that just i can does not compute uh, but i mean he strikes me as someone who's almost asexual like and i don't mean sex but i like uh, i could see him dating a guy or a girl like and, you know he's just like you know i look at like some comics that are just so overtly straight and like womanizers like he just strikes me as he doesn't necessarily care about that stuff. He's just David Tell. Certainly not a hook, for sure. Yeah. So, uh, you know, but he's so, like, good at just the absurdities of life. And that look he gets on his face of, like, you know, what am I doing here? <laughs> but he's, like, that perfect example of, you know, I... <sighs> I, I can't say that I do know him well, but I've certainly talked to him quite a bit, and those are two very different things. But he's one of those who, yeah, would not be anything without comedy, would not have a life, might not be alive. It's all about comedy, and he writes incessantly because that's all he can do. That's what drives him. That's what makes his life worth living. And he's only one example of thousands of people of who this is true for. And it's not even comedy. It's whatever art you're pursuing uh there's just so many commonalities that are i mean you know there's like i've said tons of people writing about these other aspects but for me i i think comedy is the perfect encapsulation for a lot of these issues and i just try to express that in some way <laughs> we'll see if i can keep doing another 15 years but like when you say you're assigned, uh, okay, we want you to write an article on uh, Comic A. Do you 
what, what's the first thing you do? Do you like do a little research on, okay, they're dry and sarcastic or like, do you just, how do you approach a subject? Uh, at this point for me, it's, I'm pitching a lot of my different editors at different places, the, you know, Rolling Stones and your GQs and varieties. And I just start doing stuff for Playboy and on and on, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I already have a good idea what I want to do. And it's just a matter of trying to place it uh, with the plates I think it would fit. Right. Uh, with the editor who would understand what I'm talking about. Um, sometimes I don't place anything. Or sometimes I won't place a story anywhere. And I have to kind of let it go and see if I can do it the next time around. If somebody has another new special or whatever's happening with them. But like with Roast Battle, you, did you think the LA Weekly was like, okay, this is kind of an, it's such an anti-alt show. I think it's an alt show. Like if that makes any sense. Uh, did you think, okay, well, the LA Weekly is kind of a all uh, news weekly. It's a good pairing. I actually was doing it first for Vice. I had not, I still don't have a Vice byline at this point, don't really even want one anymore, but it was one that I hadn't broken through and gotten that byline with that I thought I should. Like, why haven't I written for Vice? All these other yahoos have. And then, of course... <laughs> unsurprising in hindsight uh yeah the editor was kind of a douche and didn't know what i was talking about and it was vice what more of an explanation is there and i'd already been writing for la weekly for so long that i just took it to them and since it is a local show and it is covering the local la comedy scene and it was something new and exciting that hadn't been covered and they knew that i knew my comedy stuff um i mean i've been written writing for la weekly since 2009 at this point and uh, yeah go ahead you obviously know what you're talking about let's let's do it right well uh what's been the biggest change and so you started 15 years so that would be what 2003 yes january of 2003 after driving that u-haul so that was like the the prime of like myspace and you know, the comics who were big at that time uh, were like Dane Cook because he had a zillion followers and, uh, you know, other comics who kind of piggybacked on his uh, not necessarily uh, be great comics. And I'm not talking about him, but like I think a lot of people saw him with, oh, my God, he's got, you know, 10 million followers on MySpace you never really heard people talk about his material. It was always how many followers he has. And to me, that spawned a whole generation of, I'm going to get 10 million Twitter followers, Instagram followers, just, you know, some girls like, or post-sexually provocative uh, comics. I'm talking about bikini pics. And it's like, you know, they sell out shows because guys just want to go see the bikini girl. They don't care about her material. And guys do it the same. They post, I don't know, sexy pictures. And, like, do you think it's different? Like, there seems to be a less emphasis on material. Uh, yeah. I mean, there were... Uh, well, first of all, I think when I started, it was very slightly before 
MySpace, I recall getting on MySpace in, I want to say, 2005. And he was certainly, without a doubt, yeah, that first big social media comic. There was a, a thing called Comedy Soapbox that he, Steve Hofstetter did before Uh-oh. that. It was kind of an early MySpace for comedians. Basically had all the same functions, and you could help get gigs booked through it and that kind of stuff. But at the time, Dane Cook really was an interesting phenomenon. I did write about him in 2004 as a comedy rock star. He did do something unique, for sure. I am not going to fault him for that. Oh, no. I mean, I'm not a detractor. But I just, you know, in in Hofstadter's an almost an even better example of everyone knows him because he's got like uh, you know at least locally uh but you can't name one joke of his like it's like, oh he's got four hundred thousand followers on twitter but uh who is this guy like you know uh, and that's not i don't know him so it's not uh, we have no beef uh i do think dane cook did a service to comedy in that he was kind of a gateway drug I think a lot of college-age kids got into him and from there discovered a lot of other comedians. Sure. I know a lot of young New York people who benefited from that. Um, I think Mike Birbiglio would be a good example of people who, once all these Dane Cook fans... Maybe got over him or realized there was other material to explore out there from other people doing it. Uh, That's when he might have started the, I don't know if I want to call it a downhill slide. And uh, certainly he's had a lot of personal issues and family issues and has had kind of a rough go of things. Some of it his own doing. But when you look at the big, picture of whether faddish social media or provocative you know profile pictures or sensational material attracts people in a wrong way I'm still attracting them and they might discover other comedy from there it's that whole you know what the rising tide raises all boats or whatever that phrase is Comedy is bigger right now than it's ever been. It's obviously because of social media. There's no denying that at all. And that's for the better and for the worse. There are comics who got into it for those reasons of trying to get laid or be famous or just have the followers and get endorsements who have gone on to do other things. There are comics who... (laughs) You know, even get into comedy in the first place just to act. But that's always been around, too. It's kind of besides the point and goes back to that talk of just follow your own path. It's inevitable that people are going to do that and muck up the craft. But that's, again, in anything. If you keep the blinders on and work hard and do your own thing, so what? Like, there's nothing you can do about it. There's no reason to waste all that time and energy. I have a million things I want to bitch about in print, but who cares? (laughs) I would call out so many people, but it's just a waste of energy. 
that it I really could be is. using writing about something that I love and that I want people to know about for good reasons. I mean, Jimmy Carr gave me the best advice, and I love Jimmy Carr. People think we're uh, contentious with each other, but I love Jimmy Carr. He's like, dude, just worry about your side of the road and be funny. And it's like, no, it's like such a simple, like, no shit, Jimmy. But when you see the success that he has, like, all right, he knows what he's talking about. Maybe I should just take that simple advice and... You know, because it does take so much energy if you worry about uh, certain other people and or you, you know. I mean, I tend to be a vindictive person. Uh, I'm honest about it. If someone wrongs me, I go all in on uh, the attack. Uh, but I'm trying to, through the advice of Jimmy, be a better person. I would love to take down certain people and certain organizations for sure, but I don't think that's who i want to be right now maybe we'll revisit that idea later <laughs> well i find that uh, these people take down themselves at some point you know uh you know it's just i don't think people realize at least in stand up you know the, the more successful you get the smaller the mountain gets so you have to deal with less and less people so you have to be liked or you start going back <laughs> i don't know what it's like in journalism but i'm assuming it's the same like the more successful you get, the the, the fewer successful writers there are because you're bypassing people. You got to be liked, right? I mean, I would not. I'm I'm still in the like the foothills. I'm not even. I think on you're a little bit proper. You're a little bit more than the foothills. <laughs> I'm on a different. Uh, I'm looking at the main mountain from, uh, you know, the next ski lift over. Right. And I'm on the ski lift behind you. Uh, yeah, I could, you know, that's talking about a whole traditional ball of wax that I'm not a part of, but uh, do have certainly something unique happening, hoping to happen in the process of maybe happening. We'll see how it goes. Because you got uh, some projects coming out that you can't exactly talk about right now, but like you got some things coming down the pike. Yeah, there's always stuff I'm trying to do that is bigger in nature. Whether it ends up happening or not, I've learned to not get hopes up. Because if it does happen, it does. If it's not, there's always something else. It's just about that process and not stopping and, you know, writing every day and going to bed happy with what you've done and just do it all over again. Yeah, I mean, it's some people might think it's a boring life. Like I do the same thing every day. I wake up, I start writing jokes, or go to the gym or whatever, audition or two, go to the comedy store or improv, tell those jokes I wrote earlier in the day, and I wake up the next day and do the same thing. I love it though. Yeah, I always very early on wanted to live my life without an alarm clock, and writing was certainly a way to do that. And, you know, you wake up with that alarm clock and in the night at the comedy store at one or two in the morning and not go to an office the next day where you're making your money for someone else and being miserable and having poor health. That sounds way more boring to me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, uh, it's a tough lifestyle to explain to cubicle people. Like, you know... But they're in their own pattern. Nine to five, go home, 
eat dinner at 6 30 watch tv for now and then go to sleep you do the same thing the next day so we're all doing <laughs> we're all creatures of habit you know i mean tommy lee wakes up fucks the girl next to him goes into a recording studio maybe has a gig that night comes back with a different girl fucks that girl the next morning i mean he does the same thing with a different person so he's, he he's quickly doing, bored of it well i don't you know well he uh well yeah well some of those guys go through so many women that women are a gateway drug to dick for them i have not uh, quite hit that level is that what that is okay well, I, I had a well. You're you you would have be a good person to uh, have. It's not necessarily an argument, but uh, debate. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I told a story once of David Lee Roth. Uh, yeah, I would say he was picking up on me at Crazy Girls, and my friends like, well, that means he's gay. I'm like, I don't think so. He's like, this guy slept with thousands of women. Uh, you want to start hanging out with dudes after thousands of women? That's boredom. That's not gay. Now, if you sleep with one girl and you're like, that was horrible. Where's the next? I need a dick. That's possibly could be gay. I never considered that. Um, I could understand if that is the case. When you look at your, what your Mick Jaggers and your David Bowie's and Lou Reed's and um, I wouldn't discount it. I mean, um, it could simply be part of that artistic streak and yeah, pushing your boundaries and not putting labels on anything and just experiencing everything you can in this limited time that you're here. Sure. Um, yeah, but I never quite thought of it that way. Well, I'm sure you think of it as a little more higher plane than I do, but I just like to me, I figure David Lee Roth, Van Halen's been famous basically since 76. So that's, uh, that's 42 years that this guy's been getting laid and he's probably been getting laid before 76. So, uh, you know, I, I think at this point in 2018, he probably needs a cheese grater to get off. Like, you know, like there's only, I mean, women are the greatest creation on God's earth. Like I don't you know, skinny, short, fat, tall. I mean, the, the female body to me is the most beautiful creation i've ever seen on earth a man's body isn't like i i mean maybe you would differ on that like i i have a great body i don't look at my body and go wow that's hot <laughs> so am i am i not picking up on the the bait of the line of the yes you have a great body no right? no we know you're all super hot i no. concur the no not <laughs> at all no that's not why but like you know i don't think a male body is attractive I mean, a female body is, uh, whether it's naked, clothed, to me, it's just like the shapes. I mean, a man's body is like, I don't want to see a, a guy's dick just hanging there. I mean, I've been in a lot of locker rooms, so like I've never, you know, like, I don't know. Maybe I'm, this might be a good way to end the podcast, just talking about, uh, you know, a guy's dick just hanging there. You're just, you're saying you're not. Uh, you've not experienced enough success to put you on the, f the path David of fame to the point of having slept with so many women that you're bored of it yet. See, that's why you're the writer. You basically summed up the last seven minutes of me stuttering and stammering through what I was trying to say in under 15 seconds. I Yes, I am not there yet. I'm not in the David Lee Roth mindset or Paul Stanley. Thank you. 
Gene. Sounds like uh, you're working on some material there. Oh, no, I'm not doing bits to you. I'm really not. I'm just, I'm fascinated. You, you could be. That could be a uh, thing to explore. Well, oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely there. If I paid you to write, you know, like Roast Battle, I pay people to write uh, the jokes. I'm like Bon Jovi. I outsource the songs and then I sing them. So uh, you might be my new comedy writer. Oh, jeez. <laughs> just write me five minutes on failed relationships and... Uh, well, actually, I could write about that. So, I mean, I could write a book on that. Uh, and that's one of those like people always. Oh, you're a comedy journalist. That's cool. Have you ever been a comic? Have you wanted to do comedy? No, comedy journalist means I write about comedy. I'm not. I've never had any. I mean, I did like high school plays. I think was the extent of it. But I've never had any desire to do an open mic nights. Uh, that's just not what I'm drawn to. It's kind of talking about those first open mic nights and where they lead and the people and the art. Well, I remember my first open mic. It was not pretty. It's yes. weird that you can remember so vividly something that had happened so long ago, but I was horrible back then. This was in LA. Was LA, Michael Collier. If you've ever seen the Tony Robbins infomercial, he was famous for being the black uh, street performer on Venice Boulevard, um who uh you know would just do comedy on venice uh not venice boulevard venice the boardwalk and he would get the biggest crowds and uh, so tony robbins had him on the infomercial uh to show that hey you can literally go from doing comedy on the streets to the very similar uh guy in new york uh who was Chappelle's mentor uh charlie barnett yes yes who i am fascinated by uh because he was in Miami Vice and, and like he was very, very funny in that. And so I became a fan of his through going, who is this guy? He's really funny. And uh, he was uh, supposed to be on SNL and he couldn't read or he had trouble it's at the very least. He, and so he didn't go to his final audition. And then Eddie Murphy got the, uh, the gig. And it's just like, that's like, you know, when, you're a mentor to Chappelle and Jeff Ross has talked about Charlie Barnett a lot. So Michael Collier was like, I guess you'd say the West coast, Charlie Barnett. And uh, he put me up at an open mic in Beverly Hills and I was horrible. I mean, I was awful. Where was this in Beverly Hills? Indochine restaurant on Beverly drive. Wow. And not Beverly Boulevard, the shishi part, Beverly drive, which is like a lot of high end sushi restaurants and nightclubs and whatnot. And uh, this is 20 years ago. So, uh, there's no Netflix or internet or uh, if you wanted to go see comedy you had to actually go out and see it um, and he had so the Vogue thing at the time was comedy and like high end restaurants and nightclubs and whatnot. if you didn't like going to comedy clubs uh, and uh, I was horrible I, I mean I was horrific do you remember your jokes? absolutely I was doing like hey everyone uh Writing a book on Liberace, it's uh, called Two Lips on His Organ, and just nothing. <laughs> I'm like, hey, I'm also, if you're a fan of that book, I've got a book called uh, How to Find Uranus. It's about astrology, <laughs> just nothing, just dying. <laughs> and uh, uh, and he just came up to me afterwards, and he's like, you haven't done this, have you? I'm like, not really, dude. But he's like, you can come back next week. Like, and he gave me hope, like, because he was like a positive thinker type dude. So, uh, 
you know, that's, you know, I, I'll never forget it. Well, yeah. yeah, it's all in how you felt after that first open mic, whether you knowingly did not get any laughs. Oh, I didn't want to do it again. That's the whole thing from then on. You're a comedian or not. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've never done stand up for the money. Like, I've never done it for the fame or you certainly re- you want those things. But like, I just love doing it. You know, so it's just like you love doing writing. You don't do it for the fame or the, you know, like you get to meet celebrities. Like you, you're good at it. Thanks. Yeah. I, I, I guess I have my moments. Um, and yeah, like I said, this is kind of the one point where I'm, I'm proud of doing this so far. And then I'll go back into a five year hibernation until my 20th anniversary of, Hey, I'm still here doing this, but it just, you know, like we've been kind of saying this whole time. It just is what it is. It's not ever been a choice to not do it. It is indivisible with who I am. I'm less like sitting here on your couch and more just this force of only existing in the comedy world is who Julie Seabaugh is. That's pretty mad. That's wow. That's so philosophical. Listen, you just Uh, lost my fan base. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. It's less, you know, it's not that I'm a person from Missouri or a female or whatever. Like I, Julie Sebo is a comedy writer and that's all there is to it. And there's nothing I can do about it. Right. But you cover, uh, there's so many different kinds of comics that you cover. You could cover, you know, a tell you could cover, uh, someone who's, you know, a Dane cook, you know, I, I think you can't get really much more opposite than those two in terms of uh, presentation of their acts. You can cover a show like roast battle. You can cover, you know, a show like, uh, you know, at UCB or, you know, uh, go to the Groundlings and, you know, uh, you can really, I guess they call them baseball. Someone's a five-tool player. They can catch, run, field. I don't know what the other two are, but uh, but you could cover. Spit. Uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, molest the Bat Boys. Uh, uh, but you can, like, cover all. Do steroids. Co- yeah, yeah. Well, they do do uh, steroids. uh well, in every sport, I mean, uh, but you can cover all different kinds of comedy. So, yeah, and I'm uh, every day this month for my anniversary, I'm reposting one story from my past every day on social media, and yeah, like a lot of that's you know I go from the David Tell to the Amy Schumer cover of Variety to talking about why everybody should see Improvised Shakespeare. Uh, for a story I did for LA Weekly, um, history of Comedy Central for the AV Club. I'd like uh, to get in on that article. Yeah. yeah, so I'm just kind of, yeah, doing what you said. Of Here's a bunch of stuff I've done to check out. Uh, comedy stuff I recommend. People who weren't quite as interesting then as they were now. Or who used to be way more interesting. <laughs> They've fallen off a little bit. But that happens. Like you can, you know, some comics are more interesting when they're famous. I find a lot, almost most, to my warped view, are more interesting when they're a little on the hungrier side and like they're, you know, the Rocky Balboa climb and scratching to to get to Comedy Central or Netflix or Hulu or whatever Amazon or 
pass at the comedy store and then when they get what they want it's like they kind of sell out and you know i like comics before they sell out it can be disheartening to realize that when you do get what you think you've always wanted that's when the real work actually begins yeah because you have to maintain your integrity and it's hard to maintain your integrity like because when you get to the tv land world it's corporate and it's you're being told by people who've never done comedy before how to do comedy and it's like you guys don't you know what are you guys talking about i'm the one that's been in the freaking jungle for 20 years while you guys were i don't know at endosheen uh, i don't know watching me bomb yeah so that's the most frustrating thing for me is like I'm sure you get told how to write or something by someone who doesn't have near your experience or you, you you have to pitch it to someone who has no writing background at all. Am I wrong? Uh, I think the thing I always get is, yeah, publicists pitching me stuff that I'm never in a million years going to do, whether because tons of other people are going to do it because it's so mainstream, which bores me. Or it's someone that, hey, this is the next person coming up that I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> That's oh my God. Probably, which isn't necessarily a bad problem to have. It's more about um, the, well, kind of talking about just keeping going um, when you reach this level or that level of your career. Uh, like an example of, uh, like, there's a ton of memoirs. The comedian memoirs are always coming out all the time. I actually think one of the best ones, most well-written ones, uh, was from Carol Leifer about maybe four years ago, who was the inspiration for Elaine on Seinfeld and obviously has had a long, long, long career in her own right. Uh, but her advice that stuck out to me from that book was, it just doesn't ever get easier you have to get out of bed and put your feet on the floor and work hard every single day. Oh, absolutely. Almost have to work harder the once you make it to protect your vision of like, you know, what you want to joke about or write about. And you have to come to terms with that. That's what a career is. It's never going to get easier you might be super rich it's not going to be easier you might have girls falling all over you it's not going to be easier that's part of it and when you realize that it's another one of those points kind of like the first open mic that you did okay that was horrible am i going to still do this and then you get that first taste of what you think fame is and you realize I'm still going to have to work really, really, really hard. Are you going to do it? That's another level. And that's how you build a career. That's the whole entire thing, how you do anything that you love for your lifetime. Oh, absolutely. I think it's not, you have to always look ahead. Can't get comfortable. Because I see that a lot, you know, with certain people, you know, in roast battle. Like, I'm just using that. Like, they think, I'm going to get on roast battle and be famous. It's like, no, you, you're going to get a little exposure. And it's what you do with that exposure that's going to make you famous. You know, because, you know, when next season comes around, you're, you're probably not going to be on it. 
So then it's those people's turns. And then you're like, all right, what did you do with it? You, you know, and then I guess that's with anything. Like, you know, you get, how many people do you see on, you know, Jimmy Kimmel or Conan? You know, you're not going to get famous off that one set on late night TV. It's what you do with it. I think some people just, they don't look ahead. They just think, I'm in the moment. I'm on TV tonight. I'm famous. It's like, well, you might be famous tonight. But tomorrow morning, people are going to be like, who's on Conan tonight? <laughs> Sorry. It's a cold business, Jack. And it's certainly hard if you're already just struggling day to day, working your ass off to get to this point to realize, yeah, and now we have to do it all over again until I die. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, you wrote you wrote the article on Roast Bell in the LA Weekly. Got a lot of fame that week. And then the next week, it's like, all right, what are you writing about now? Yeah, still can't pay my rent. What's next? Yeah. That's so, <laughs> uh, I mean, that's the number one problem I see. I don't know about for journalists, but for comics anyway, is like they fight so hard for that goal to get on TV or to get past the, this club or whatnot. And uh, like they don't think two, three steps ahead. Well, the good thing about comedy these days is, yes, there is so much of it. But the internet has also opened up a lot of opportunities to create your own pathway and kind of have more control over what form your comedy is going to take. You don't necessarily have to work hard to get that Carson spot and then you're famous. You can do the stand-up. You can have a podcast. You can have a web series. You can release your own albums without ever even having to tour and deal with horrible road crowds you can do basically whatever you want to do and there are far less gatekeepers. Yeah. It's just deciding what route you want to take and the compromises you want to take on the way there. That's certainly a good thing for comedic creativity. Oh, I love it. Like, uh, you know, I had a meeting with a, a, company that wanted to do a comedy cd and i was like well let's do video and audio let's just do it in one one shot sell it to netflix like tony hinchcliffe did his special uh or let's maybe sell it to comedy central and they're like no let's just do uh, audio for now we'll do video later i'm like why it's like, how hard is it like, you saw how tony did his is one fucking camera like no and i'm not like I'm a big fan of that. Like he did it. He he sold it to Netflix. I mean, he's just what you were talking about. Is like I'm sure he got told no by certain networks or whatever. And he's like, fuck it. I'll just do I'll do my own. But which is the good thing, because he got to the highest level you can get with that way of thinking. But now there's also everyone and their mom going, Well, I'll just put one camera in the back of this club with, you know. It's like, oh no. It's, <laughs> No, 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 no. Well, yeah, more power to you if you're funny. Yeah, yeah. If you're I, a good comedian, theoretically, that'll come out in the wash. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I that's it's like podcasts. Like, uh, the beauty of podcasts is you literally need an H4N recorder and two mics, and you can have a podcast. And if you're a good interviewer or, or you can get good guests who hopefully talk a lot so I don't have to... <laughs> It's great. But then also someone who's not very funny or a good interviewer and they can't get good guests, they'll still pump out that podcast. It is awful. But uh, you know, 
you know, to each his own. I got to be like Jimmy Carr and just worry about my side of the road. It's hard to do, but, you know, the road is pretty limitless these days for people who want to pursue comedy. I do. I mean, you almost don't need a manager or an agent. I mean, it certainly helps to navigate uh, the minefields of uh, certain scenarios. I mean, I wish I had one uh, for one particular scenario that was, uh, you know, I needed someone to play the bad guy and make calls on my behalf, but uh, it all worked out in the end. But uh, certainly, uh, you know, like Whitney Rice uh, got signed to a huge talent agency because she just cranked out those videos week after week after week. They were all good. She edited them herself. I mean, she's another, she should be anyway, a role model to people who were, you know, like, how do I get a manager? How do I get an agent? How do I get on TV? Like, she just does it all. She's a one-woman show. So, uh, you know. Doing it on her own terms. Oh, Lois and uh, Petey getting a little, uh, little uh, aggressiveness. I'm going to stand up. Just so, Lois, it's all good. Uh, you know, I think what happened was Petey made a move for Lois's bony. So, uh, you know, this might be a good way to uh, bring home the podcast, as they say in the business. Julie, where can people find you? I, I, I want you to, bl your blog sites, websites, this is the time to plug it all. <laughs> This is my once in a 15 year period. I'm and a, please spell for my fan base. Uh, okay. Yes. Uh, so my webpage is juliesebaugh.com. Julie is spelled like Julie. Seabaugh is S-E-A-B-A-U-G-H. And that is the same thing that all the socials are under Julie Seabaugh. I'm posting stories every day this month that I've written in the past. Uh, that's a good way of sampling stuff I've done. And yeah, I just uh, hope to see people out at more comedy shows and write about more comedians in the future. And that's all I got to say. Well, that's enough. But if you uh, are fans of comedy and you like to get uh, uh, well-written articles on the subject, there's, no, there's none better. I've been doing comedy 20 years. Uh, no one writes about the not just LA scene, but the New York scene, individual comics like Julie, because she does her research. It's not just a cursory, uh, oh, this guy was influenced by uh, Lenny Bruce. He's great. Go see him. Oh, thank you. You get like three or four pages where most people would do a couple paragraphs. So become fans of Julie uh, and uh, read her articles at the previously mentioned social media sites. And uh, Inappropriate Earl, SoundCloud and iTunes. And who knows, maybe Julie, maybe I will be lucky enough one day for Julie to interview me about my special that I want to do in front of four drunk people at the comedy store at two in the morning. <laughs> I really want to do that. No cash was exchanged for this Inappropriate Earl interview. No, no, I really want... Uh, to do and the the audience will be let in for free and my special will be going so bad that i will bring in another comic to close out my special so work on that i mean there's worse on the air believe me uh some of those specials are uh they're not very special 
better specials at the Inglewood Denny's at four in the morning. But I, now I'm getting better, so uh, let's not uh, leave this podcast on a bitter note. Julie Seabaugh, thank you very much for coming. I very, very much appreciate it. Petey, thank you very much for intermingling with Lois on her turf. I know it was a little weird, but we'll have you back on the podcast. And uh, guys, just... I don't ask much from you guys. I don't make a fucking dollar on this podcast. Just leave a review on iTunes. It's really not that difficult. Uh, and share it at the appropriate sites, Facebook and Twitter. You guys complain that I only interview uh, comics. Well, you know what? No celebrity is going to come on a podcast with 300 fucking downloads. So the more people that know about it, the bigger it gets. And then I can get Gene Simmons on the pitches uh, box set, which is 150 songs that weren't good enough to get on kiss albums i mean who wouldn't want to fork over money for that i love you all